Developing Tomorrow's Leaders is a podcast that is all about educating, supporting, and inspiring the next generation of leaders. Your host, Antoine Thompson, has over 35 years of experience of inspiring and empowering many young men and women. Join Coach T as he talks with pediatrician, teen health and wellness coach, school consultant and professional development for K-12, through and keynote speaker, Dr. Miriam Mandel. I am delighted to welcome to Developing Tomorrow's Leaders, Dr. Miriam Mandel. How are you today, Dr. Mandel? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing stupendously marvelous, as always. You know me. I'm always doing great. Well, I'm excited (laughs) to have you on because, as you well know, this is all about developing the next generation of leaders. And there are so many misconceptions about the growth and development of preteens and teens and the brain development is a big part of that because we've all been through it, not knowing what we're going through. And then having someone like yourself who studied the brain and understands that development process. And I would love to uh, first and foremost, find out what got you so interested in that aspect of uh, teen development, the brain development. Well, I, I was in conventional for many years and then I had always noticed um, that I asked very different questions than most physicians. Like, of course, we all we all ask the same, like history and physical and social history and all that kind of thing, past medical history. But I was always I was always asking, like, what what's kind of going on with these kids that they're developing, that they're manifesting these symptoms, and like, why do some manifest these symptoms and why do others not? And I had a situation with a little boy that was actually my last patient when I, when I saw him. And it was, it was basically what, what I was feeling was that there was so much connection between the mind and the body. And I always instinctively knew that. And I felt that in medical school, that that's so not um, taught, right? We're just taught, we're just really taught just physiology and we're taught about just the body the body um, body connection. <laughs> and I always instinctively knew that it was so much more than that. And it always interests me. And when I, this little boy, and, and I'd, I had seen that in many different situations, but this particular little boy really struck something in me when I met him. And when I, it, I, I got to interview, not interview, but, you know, speak to the family about what was going on with him. He was about five and he had come in with a a twisted gut, his basically his 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 intestines were twisted around each other, and he needed surgery, and and I I was thinking to myself, and he was only five, and I'm like, you know, what is going on with this kid that this is happening to him? Because he had no prior, you know, birth history, past medical history. There was nothing else really going on. There was no, there was nothing going on genetically that would have caused something like this. And then I met his family and I'm telling you, within five minutes, I had a stomach ache. Like it was, it was awful. It was a, um, two grandparents that were fighting and it was a divorce situation. It wasn't the parents, it was the grandparents. And I had this one pulling me one way, this one pulling, like, don't tell this one. And, and just, it was, it was just nasty. And I'm thinking, you know, this poor kid is in this situation where I literally had a stomach ache just in the room with them. And so we have this child who's going to get surgery to release this, you know, and have his abdomen, part of his intestines removed. And then what are we going to do? Like, we're just going to send him back to that same environment. And to me, that just didn't make, it didn't make much sense. And it, and I felt like there was just much more that we were not doing the field of conventional medicine. I had my own private practice and I continued there for a bit, but I decided to eventually leave medicine and I started to study about mindfulness and meditation and different holistic types of medicine. I, I became a Reiki master. I got into homeopathy. I was just kind of feeling what was really working. I, I, I started a, I had been meditating for quite some time, but I really kind of picked up my meditation practice, uh, especially after the Reiki, the Reiki training. And 
I started teaching in the hospitals. I was teaching like doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners about all the studies about mindfulness and meditation and the health benefits and, you know, how we can pretty much change what's going on with us physically with our, with our mind and using some of the power of our mind to do that. And I used all research based, like through the National Institute of Health, I used, you know, all, you know, good quality reviewed research. And I was fascinated by what I was finding. I mean, this was stuff that, you know, the government's paying millions of dollars to have this explored and most people don't know it. So that's where I started. And it's been, it's kind of, I've taken a lot of different paths since then, but um, that's kind of what got me into that, into that, in that direction. Was that interesting about? (laughs) No, no, that's fine. No, I mean, I think it's important, but I think it's uh, you really laid a foundation for a lot of what this conversation is going to be about, and it's always understanding the why, you know, because there's always a root cause of a situation. And what you described with this young boy, five years old, uh, it's what's happening um, internally, you know, within the family that affects and we don't realize how it has what impact it has on kids and then uh, and I'm actually going to jump in because this is a great opportunity for me to ask this question so when we think about uh, preteens and teens going through um, their education over the last couple of years Mm. being removed from the conventional classroom and having extended uh, virtual learning and some of these kids potentially, or some of these kids being in a dysfunctional family to start with, now they're having extended time with that dysfunctional situation. What lasting impacts does that have in relation to their their gro- their personal growth and obviously with their brain development at that stage? Well, that's kind of a big question, um, just because it really depends on what age they're at. Right. And you know, I mean, with some kids did really well during the pandemic, like I have two kids, one of them did really well during the pandemic, and one of them didn't. Um, she just really missed being in school and really and one of them just thrived. So, you know, it kind of depends on the kid about the whole pandemic thing. Um, there was a lot of repercussions from that through men- with the mental health issue. And, you know, which is extremely unfortunate, but Depending on their age, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the programming, like literally, like programming that we get as a child is from really from preconception, like the third trimester of pregnancy, until about seven. And during those age, that's a very critical age when things in their in in a child's environment. Like if you think about it, we can't sit a child down and teach them social rules, right? We can't have them read a book or have them um, have a discussion about how, how they should behave and how they should, you know, live in a family and communicate and things like that. So the way that children that young will get these, this information is they don't have like a filtering process, like older kids and adults, where if somebody says something to you, or you feel a feeling that feels off, we can kind of reject it. We can say, no, I'm not going to accept that or that doesn't sound right for me. But under seven, there's no filter. So it goes right into their subconscious. So these are the things that most of us are dealing with the subconscious programming as an adult. And, you know, we all try to be the best parent we can, but we all try, we, all, we do the best that we can um, generally. But a lot of these behaviors and a lot of these subconscious thoughts, um, which is, which takes up much of our daily life. Like research has shown up to 95% is that we're actually dealing with subconscious, you know, these, these underlying issues that we got from when we were very young and what, what, unfortunately they don't really talk about changing them because we actually can change them. People don't, some people don't realize that they can change them and they, and we can as adults, um, obviously it's easier as children. Yeah. So this has been, so it really depends on the age. And then there are issues obviously with pre-adolescents, adolescents during their brain development, very important for kids that age to have that social community. It's, it's really part of our biology. You know, if you see like adolescents 
And, and this is cross species. Like they need even like packs of deer or different adolescent birds. Like you can see things, you know, you can see different types of animals flocking together. And a lot of times adolescents will come together because they need that. They practice social skills. They practice things that they need to survive in a group because there's safety in numbers. So that goes for humans too. And when somebody would be kicked out of a, whether it's a human or a, an a, any other animal, if a young, like an adolescent, you know, part of that group was kicked out or anyone was actually kicked out or left alone, they would die. So it's biologically in our genes to want to be in a group and have that safety and have that connection. And that's why as, as adolescents, we put, we push away from our parents because we need to find our own, we need to find our own tribe. Right. And so it's about with humans or with, with other animals, a lot of times it's about finding your tribe and then coming back, but they have to have those pushing away moments. It's built into us biologically. So a lot of times parents will take that personally, you know, um, the way the whole brain is set up is to have that happen. So we are geared towards that. So it has nothing to do with the parents. I mean, there's been articles showing that there are actually times in development in adolescence where a child or an adolescent will block the mother's voice. It literally, like they will be blocking their, they won't hear them like they would like a friend, you know, or a peer. And that's just part of our biology. So parents sometimes when they understand some of the things don't don't take it as personal i'm going to repeat that one because i think that's really <laughs> important no because i think you're absolutely yeah. right you know they take it personally because oh, they're yeah. you know they're assuming i can be honest with you i've been around kids long enough to from um let's say nine ten and then i'm around them till they're like 13 14 yeah. and i see the change in and even me because we build a really good relationship but then i see them now kind of drift and i'm kind of like hey you know kind of what happened here right right but then i and i realized that that is what that is part of that process but then guess what we we uh develop a different type of relationship it's still strong because once i understand where they're where exactly. they've gone i can reconnect and understand it yeah. and now i i'm i can communicate with them on their level still like we did before but now they've evolved to another level and then that's that's a great uh, point. And so do you have any couple of tips for parents to prepare them for this transition? Because we know it's going to happen and it's part of their development. Yeah. I mean, really, I guess the only thing I would say is to be aware of it and to support it, because it is something like the more we resist it, the more there's going to be pushback. And that's really that's really with anything with with anybody, not even just kids, right? I mean, a spouse or a friend, like when when we have, when we set certain expectations or demands, nobody wants to do what somebody else wants them to do, right? And it goes probably twice as much for an adolescent. So just understanding that this is a normal part of biology, um, even, you know, like, I mean, not I don't think it's necessary to really tell your kids that, but I mean, it is a it is a normal part of their development. So, you know, they should know that sometimes this is going to happen and it's because they don't even understand it. You know, they don't understand why it's happening and, and it will come on sometimes very quickly where a child is pretty, you know, a lot more dependent on a parent. And then they get to a certain age or, you know, during adolescent, during puberty, and it, it's going to change quickly. And there are so many things going on in the pre-adolescent and the adolescent brain that really make these kids into little different little humans. Like they are completely being rewired. So I like to talk about that with parents. I talk a, a quite a bit about that in the schools because then they understand that it's um, what's normal and then what to expect because there are some really pretty developmentally appropriate things that happen during certain times that are that are pretty predictable. And I would also think that uh, during this process that the interaction with peers and friends, they could increase the tenacity of that change, meaning it could be more immediate as opposed to gradual because of the influences 
outside the home. Is that fair yeah, to say? And, and, it, and it probably has to do with the relationship too. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's going to be some overlap there. Yes, it is biology, but if you don't have a strong base with your child, then that's going to be probably more dramatic um, versus if your child is feeling more at ease. And, and some of it is going to be genetic too. Some of it is, you know, it's not to really, it's not to blame anybody. It's just, you know, I, I think that, I mean, what I've seen in with my, with my clients and with my kids, it's that if there is that strong base, it's not going to be as dramatic as some of these other kids that are quite dramatic, you know, getting involved in really needing to feel like part of gangs and part of, you know, I mean, I did my residency, I did my, um, medical school in New York and in Brooklyn. And there were some, you know, 12, 13 year olds out coming. I mean, and I learned because these kids like gangs is a big thing. That's why kids join gangs. They, they need, they actually need to feel part of something. So very important, you know, sports are great. I'm a big, you know, I love to see kids getting involved in sports and being part of a team. Some schools it's even required. Um, I think there's some there's some science behind that. No, there definitely is, but there's also been a significant fall off, obviously due to COVID, with um, athletic participation. Perfect example here in uh, uh, this area here in North Carolina. Uh, several of the schools went from having you know junior varsity and varsity teams to only having one team because they didn't have enough players to that would participate, student athletes that would participate, and primarily because of being separated for so long and i think again going back to my question you know i was talking about the uh, extended virtual learning process and the lack of the uh, the social and emotional connections that they were so accustomed to with the day-to-day education environment allows some of them to disconnect from the extracurricular activities and to your point reaching out for other social engagements besides athletics Mm. So w- when you say that, do you mean like when when the kids were allowed to go back, they they chose not to go to sports? Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting. Yes. Why do you think that is? I think, be- in my opinion, I think it's uh, because of the extended separation. It gives them an opportunity, just like with all of us, even as adults, it gives us a chance to reflect on where we were, where we are, and where we're going. Oh, yeah. And it's like, how important are sports to me now, now that I've been removed from it for a certain amount of time? Where do I see myself? Um, am I really going to be that kind of player? And we're talking about kids that have been playing up to sophomore in high school and then all of a sudden junior senior year which is usually your most right. You know, right. exciting time to be there. Like, ah, I, I think I'll give that up. I didn't, I didn't realize that was going on, the sports. Yeah, it is. It's it's unfortunate, but at the same time, you're kind of explaining some of the reasons why. And and as you know, as you explained it, it just kind of stood out to me. You know, that kind of, that, that brings up something too, that goes on. Now, what, how old were these kids? Uh, We're talking 13 to 15. Yeah. So that's really prime age of, um, there's a certain development that happens. So in pre-puberty, right before puberty and, you know, and leading up to that, this, the, the circuits in the brain, like the, the connections in the brain are huge, meaning there's a ton of them. They're, 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 there's a, the same amount of neurons. So there's the same amount of nerve cells, but there's a lot of different connections. Does that make sense? Yes. Like it it could be one cell connecting to another cell. And instead of two connections, now there's 150, right? So what's happening in their brain during this pre-puberty time is they're just absorbing as much information from the environment as possible. So they would be more interested in starting a sport. They'd be more interested in in learning the guitar or learning all these new things. They ask a ton of questions. They're, They're very curious about everything. This is part of what makes them human and so they want to know and they want to and they don't even sometimes don't even care about the answer they're just asking and asking and asking trying to to absorb all this information from the world that they're you know kind of new in and then what happens at around 12 13 14 
um, through puberty up until actually 25 when it finishes. But once they start hitting puberty and, you know, 15 is a perfect example, 14, 15, when a lot of times things go awry with, with these kids, what's happening is these connections that they're so massive, they actually get cut in half. So they're losing these, some of these connections. So things that they love to do when they were younger is no longer interesting to them because that those connections were separated. So what I'd like to make a point here with kids and with parents is also with this also comes into addiction too. When you are during this phase of your life, 13, 14, 15, when you, you are really creating the circuits that are going to be solidified as an adult, you're starting to really disassociate with the ones that are not going to be meaningful and you're strengthening the ones that you need as an adult. So this is a process that it's kind of use it or lose it. So if these kids use something over and over again, whether that's sports, whether that's um, something that they know they want to do when they get older, like if they're an actor or an actress or they're a singer or if they're a football player and they know they want to do this for the rest of their life or I mean, maybe not the rest of their life, but they want to pursue this or a drug. That's when they start vaping. That's when they start experimenting with cigarettes. Those circuits are going to get really, really strong and they're going to continue to get strong as long as they do it. So I have, I do have a lot of kids that are vaping. They start like 11 or 12 years old and they get caught. And then I get a call from the parents. And what's so important, especially if they're under 15, that if they continue to do that behavior, because it's, it's, it's the reward pathway, it's going to be extremely addictive. You know, it's going to be, um, Re, it, every time they do it, they're reinforcing those circuits and they're reinforcing it in a way that feels really good. So it's going to be a lot harder to quit as an adult. If somebody starts to vape after 25, when their brain is fully developed, it's not as much of an issue. It's still very bad for you. But these kids, it's like almost that like these kids, this, this young generation that are, and, and the vaping is go, is totally, completely out of control. I mean, it's skyrocketing with these young kids. There's going to be a point where, it, see if I can explain it. So what's happening when they are vaping, they are actually inhaling something just like they would with heat, right? Like a crack cocaine. So they use crack cocaine. Now, I'm not saying it's the same as crack cocaine, but I'm saying the delivery device is the same. And what makes that important is because it gets, when they inhale it, it goes right into their brain. So it's with heat and it crosses the blood, nicotine crosses the blood brain barrier. So they're getting an almost an instant release of dopamine. So now think about this. These kids at this young age are able to control their dopamine. They're able to get it on demand and almost instantly. Dopamine is a very potent right? It's, I mean, you, I mean, we all know it. that's the cause of addiction, right? That's, right. that's what causes us to crave because what happens is they get this increase of dopamine. And then what happens is after a couple of hours and the half-life wears off, that dopamine comes down, but it doesn't come down to steady state. It doesn't come down to here, right? It was up here and now it comes down and then it goes down here. So the dopamine is even lower that's what's going to cause the craving, no matter what drug it is. So like something like, um, you know, vaping actually causes quite a bit of an increase in dopamine that feels really good to them. They get a little bit of a high, they get a little bit of a buzz, they get that feeling of concentration, they can focus, they could, because it's not just, you know, it's not just the dopamine, there's other things involved too. With nicotine, it, it affects the nicotinic receptors in our brain, which can cause some of those things that they're craving and then it will, cra they'll crash. And then a few hours later, they start to crave it and then they'll take another couple hits off of it, come back up again. But what they don't understand is that it's just going to, they're going to need more like tolerance, right? The body builds tolerance and they're going to need more and more and more of it. So that's how people become chain smokers because same thing with cigarettes. 
Um, except with cigarettes, it doesn't, it's not as quick as with vaping. It's much quicker. That dopamine release is much quicker. So it's not a joke. People, um, you know, and it's advertised to kids and it's kind of made like it, it's, it's not that bad, you know, and it's bad. It's bad. And and we're having a generation of these kids that are, if you think of it that way, right? Like they're controlling their dopamine on demand. That's right. not the way the world works unless you're a drug addict, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not realizing that doing a sport, going out for a run, that's going to release dopamine. There are, there are things, we have dopamine receptors in our brain. We have these nicotinic receptors in our brain and our body for a reason, because we need these things, but when they're abused, then you're going to get, you're going to start getting into problems, but naturally we can get these things, you know, we can get dopamine, you know, right. I mean, there's all sorts of studies on, you can take a cold shower and the dopamine effect can last for hours. There yeah. are different things that we could do. So sports is a great one. And that's why I think some of these kids that are involved in sports are going to be less, that can actually help get them off of vaping but they'll be less likely to become addicted because they're going to get that high. They know what that feels like. A kid that's in high school, that's a runner or in junior high, that's a runner. They know what that feels like. Talk about it. Like these coaches should be talking about it, talking about dopamine, talking about how they can give this, give this to themselves. They don't need that other crap, you know? So um, it's just, but un unfortunately a lot of people don't know. They don't know yet. So. Well, they're learning now because like, this yeah, is, uh, yeah. this is great. This is, very again, so I wanted to have you on because it's uh, for me it, uh, that last part is quite interesting because in the role that I'm in, I have an opportunity to uh, share that not just from uh, the basketball aspect of it, but the impact of it in their lives beyond sports, you yeah. know, and how you can replace that. And you know, you talk about dopamine, I mean, social media is another example of it, yes. you know, when you know, people get addicted, this is adults too, but kids do as well. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, it has the ability to have a lasting negative impact because they're trying to compete with everybody else on for likes and follows and all these things and trying to go viral. And then they start doing crazy stuff just to get attention yeah. and likes again. So that, that also is another aspect of it. But I also want to ask you something. It, oh, I think it kind of transitions so we talk about the the need for the uh, dopamine and through vaping and so forth but there's another aspect that i think affects young people and that is the amount of sleep that they get and because of digital uh or electronic devices they're preoccupied and they're losing quality sleep and they're going off of like when you're in your early 20s and you're out well, I'm, I'm dating myself, but, you know, you go out partying on the weekends and you stay up till two, three, but then you got to pop back up and go to work at eight and you do it, you know, but they're doing it so, so much earlier now and yeah. the lasting impact it could have on their development. Sleep is such an underrated, I mean, sleep is so huge, especially with the adolescent. I mean, it is really for all of us. There are so many things going on. People think that we go to sleep and we're just in this unconscious state. Um, but during REM sleep, we have different phases of sleep, but during that rapid eye movement part of sleep, our brains are actually 30% more active than when we're awake. So there's a lot of processing going on during sleep. Um, and with teenagers, what the problem is, this is what causes, you know, people talk about drunk driving, but um, I, have you ever heard of Matthew Walker? He's a, he's a scientist over at UCLA. He uh -huh. says um, the number of people rounded to the nearest whole number that can cognitively be unimpaired with less than six hours of sleep is zero. He says it's more likely to be struck by lightning than to have no cognitive deficit with under six hours of sleep. So that's a very strong statement. He's written a book called, I have it around here. It's called Why We Sleep. Yeah. Great book. Actually, I have it right here. Okay. <laughs> um, this is a, a great book, Why We Sleep. And he has podcasts and he does a lot of interviews. And I mean, it's amazing what goes on in sleep. I studied sleep for about two two years because I was completely fascinated with it. So it was it was hard to kind of let that go. But I talk I talk a lot about sleep. But what happens specifically with the adolescent 
So these kids in um, middle school and high school, a lot of times they have late start. Have you heard, do you guys have late start in North Carolina? What is, meaning starting the day? Starting the day, you mean? Starting a little, starting school, they can sleep in one day a week. Right. Yes. Yes. So that's actually based off of the research done and the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which suggests an 830 start time for school to give kids enough of that REM sleep that they're getting mostly in the the early morning, right? But what happens is teenagers get kind of it broken off in both ends. So what happens is we have this hormone in our brain that gets released. Actually, it starts in the morning, but what happens is um, we have a hormone called cortisol in the morning, we get a, a, a release of cortisol, which turns to serotonin, which 16 hours later after waking generally will turn to melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. So it's all on this cycle. All of our sleep is on this cycle. Um, You know, all of our cells are on this 24 hour circadian cycle. But what happens with adolescents is most adults, if they're on a regular sleep cycle where they're working during the day and they're sleeping at night, will start to get sleepy at around 10 o'clock Approximately. There are some people chronologically that will be a little bit later and some earlier, but basically the average is about 10 o'clock. And obviously as little kids, little, little kids go to sleep earlier, they're, they're more tired. They need more rest. But during adolescence, what happens is this melatonin, like, and I noticed this huge in my kids, like this was like so obvious in my kids, they were going to sleep at around the same time, you know, nine 30, 10. And then all of a sudden it was like, in middle school, one one of my it happened to my daughter in middle school a little early. My son was a little bit later. She just could not fall asleep. Like she, no matter what she did, she wanted to go to sleep and she couldn't fall asleep. And a lot of times, adults will think that their kids are just being obstinate. They're being, you know, they're they're just not listening to them. But they, but these kids cannot fall asleep because their melatonin is shifted to sometimes three hours. So their melatonin isn't coming out getting active until about midnight, one o'clock in the morning. They they physically can, they're not tired. So it becomes like this, this sleep anxiety cycle, you know, where like they're being yelled at to go to sleep. The kid actually sometimes wants to go to sleep and they can't fall asleep, right? Yeah. But it's nothing wrong with them. That's a normal process that they go through. So that's why we have some, you know, many schools have late start to give these kids a little bit more sleep to make that up because they know that's happening. Now, once a week, is it really going to be helpful? I guess it's better than nothing, right? I mean, ideally school should start at like 10. That would be ideal. You know, the kids can get up at 830 and have a breakfast and then go to school and they'll be at their peak. They'll be ready to learn. They're not ready. They're not ready because at, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, because there's still a lot of melatonin around where in an adult, as soon as we hit bright light, Within a few minutes, our melatonin is going to decrease with kids. When they get up at like seven, it's like us getting up at like four o'clock in the morning. Like they're not, they're not fully there yet. They need some time. And that's why, I mean, my son was this way. My daughter, not so much, but my son, like just not a morning person. Like he could not function at getting up at seven o'clock in the morning. He did it because he had to or 7.30. Um, and, but now he's, now he's better. Like he kind of got through that phase, but it is something that most kids go through. So they're missing the deep part of sleep at the beginning of their cycle. And then as the cycle continues for all of us, we get less deep sleep and more REM sleep. Okay. So it's like, say we start off with 5% of REM sleep the first hour and then 10%. And then it increases. So by the end of the sleep cycle, like in the mo- early morning hours, we're getting mostly REM sleep. Okay. So these kids are going to bed later. Their, their deep sleep is starting later. And then these kids are being woken up in the middle of their yeah, REM sleep. REM sleep. Yeah. So what's happening during REM is a lot of the emotional processing is happening during REM sleep. Their growth hormones, those, those sex hormones are being released and some of their um their long and short from the short term memory to long term memory that's being affected so these kids don't realize like when i when i talk in schools with teachers or parents they always try to really emphasize and and kids too 
because they'll tend some of them that sleep could really be their superpower. If they know how to regulate their sleep and they're getting a full eight hours of sleep when their peers are getting six or five and a half because they're up doing their homework and they are studying really, really late. When you're sleeping, you're actually doing your body so much more good for remembering, for being, you know, more alert, for being able to just perform much better. Um, it's just interesting because, um, and then these kids are driving. So under six hours of sleep, it's like they're driving drunk. Drunk, yeah. Well, good Lord, man, I'm not doing myself any favors. <laughs> no. I don't sleep eight hours. I don't sleep eight hours. I can't. Well, Why? well, an adult seven is like the cutoff. Like, like a, a lot of adults can can function, but if you're getting less than six hours of sleep, you're just not at you're not at your best. You're just not cognitively. You're not at your best. You're not going to be as sharp. You're not going to be as alert. You're not going to be as focused. And if you feel like you are now, like get eight hours or seven hours of sleep and then see how, how much right. you can, you know, and getting on that cycle because our bodies are on these cycles. So when we don't get that, we're really working against physiology. Whenever we work against physiology, you know, we lose. We right? lose. Yeah. If not short term, you will in the long term. It, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is great, great, great info. I mean, I hope there are some parents out there that are truly taking note and hopefully they'll listen more than once and they may listen to it a second time and start taking down little notes which is why you know, why i want to have you on because your experience is so important now i meant to mention in your bio too that you worked in my area for a while in the charlotte area yeah i did my it, residency at carolina's medical center yeah yes 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 i lived in charlotte um yeah. it was really fun i liked it there a lot yeah, it's about 30 minutes from me where i am yeah oh, okay hop, hop skip and a jump now uh Tell us about your business, Exhale With Me, your mm -hmm. website. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Basically, what I do is I work with schools. I'm, I work mostly through word of mouth. Um, I work with a, a lot of teachers. I do professional development. And many times I see, I wind up seeing their their kids uh, as a one-on-one -on, -one on adolescent coaching, health coaching, wellness coaching, things like that. So I work with a lot of adolescents in that respect. And then it's mostly just through word of mouth. So I have a lot of the clients in the same areas. I do, I have seen a couple of clients on LinkedIn, um, just people that have been following me for a while who have asked if they can't find somebody or they have a particular issue that I would be able to help with. And I will see sometimes, every once in a while, I'll see a child on Zoom on LinkedIn. But mostly I do adolescents um, in my area and work with schools either in my area or that I do Zoom. I do, I do a lot of Zoom with faculty and parents. So that's really my, I love to work with parents. And this was kind of goes back to why I got into this, this part of medicine is because when I was first going into school, I actually was getting my PhD in psychology. That was my long-term goal. I was not in pre-med. I mean, yeah, I wasn't doing pre-med. I changed as in my junior year in college and my, my closest friend was killed in a car accident. And that kind of just changed the whole trajectory of my life. And when I went back to Long Island, I'm from New York. So when I went back to Long Island to see her parents and be at the, the memorial service, the fact, like I get goosebumps thinking about it, but the fact that I could not soothe her, soothe the parents, because they saw me and they saw their daughter because we were inseparable growing up. We lived on the same block. We lived a couple couple houses over. We did everything together. You know, like our we went to camp together, went to school together. We did sleepovers. I mean, we did everything together. And when they looked at me, there was such a um, despair and one of the things that that I wanted to transition into medicine was I wanted to be able, I felt so helpless at that time, of course, and as a doctor, we're helpless sometimes too, right? I mean, we can't, you know, that's something that couldn't have been avoided, but my whole thing was to soothe parents. And that was always my favorite thing was to be able to, they would be upset or they would be worried about their child and it was nothing to be really worried about. And that was always my favorite part of that particular job. And now 
that's really what I do. I do a lot of that, like a ton of that. It's like, I'm always doing that. And because I can do it, I can do it in this, in this respect. Um, because the kids that I'm seeing are kids that want to do the work. They get the results that they're looking for. Their parents are happy. They're really, and it, and it generally goes relatively quickly. Like I don't, you know, there are some kids that are longer than others, but there are sometimes like I, I tell the parents, like, I don't, I don't really want to take your money anymore. Like your kids, like she's good or he's good, yeah. you know, yeah. and we become friendly. Like, you know, these kids, like I, sometimes I'll take them out for coffee or we go walk for walks in the park and things like that. You know, unfortunately not everybody has the income for a coach. So, you know, I mean, I try to keep it really relatively um with that in mind. Right. You know, right. And a lot of times these kids they don't they don't need very long. You know, it's not like therapy where you're in for 10 or 15 years. Like sometimes these kids six months to a year and they're really good to go, you know? And yeah. some of them choose to stay longer. Like I have a lot of college students and I do that on Zoom too. I do college because these kids are off in college and they're in different places. And actually that's it makes it easier for me because they yeah. can do it during times that are not school after school hours, they can do it earlier. It's so fulfilling. I mean, this has been like my dream job. I just, I love it. And I've been, I've been doing it about, gosh, with the, I've been doing it for like over 10 years. It's just kind of transformed quite a bit through the years. Yeah. And yeah, but you're describing a big part of, I think, is what's missing for some kids too. And knowing that parents are reaching out to you and and for your support and, and for your, your leadership and guidance and, and experience. And when you connect with kids and they realize, hey, you know, there's somebody out here that really cares about how well I do besides my family. I think it gets them focused faster than them struggling, trying to find their way for some, you know, because they try going back to what you're saying, too, is, you know, that, that feel to, that need that that need to be wanted and to fit in. And I think sometimes they find it in different places. So it's great to have, that yeah. you're a resource for that's, them. That's true. I mean, and I just, I mean, I love, I love my clients. I mean, like I love my patients. It's even easier to love my clients because I see them regularly and I, I text them, I keep up with them. I, you know, they make commitments for a week or two weeks of what they're going to do. And I'm checking up on them and they love it. They, I mean, you know, they, they do. And they, yeah. I send them quotes and um, I mean, they become part of my family. So I'm, you know, and that's why I don't necessarily take a lot of people from online because I build, I really like to build relationships with them and at least be able to see them once in a while, you know, sometimes we'll do Zoom like when they're at school, but I like to be able to see them once in a while. Yeah, but well, you're also teaching them the importance of relationships beyond just the immediate family and, and from the school environment. So I think that's another uh, huge benefit for uh, what you do, not just for you, but you know for them as well. So continue success with that. And typically, I um, would invite all of my guests to be a member of the Village of Inspiration. But I am proud to say that Dr. Mandel is already a member of the Village of Inspiration. So I'm very honored to have her be a part of that. And I would ask you one other question, if you will share with us, is the person or individuals that have been most influential in your life and why? Well, I, and that's, a, it's an easy question, maybe not what you're expecting, um, I had a difficult adolescence, um, starting at around 14. I have a narcissistic mother and I, whenever I would connect with somebody outside of the family, she would break that off. And so I never, I always wanted to, to find that person that I could connect with as a teen and I never had it. It, or it was taken away or my animals were taken away. Whatever was I became really close and attached to was taken away. So I felt that I wanted to give back in a way where some of these kids are looking or seeking, maybe not in the way that I needed, but just some added support because it's such a, it, it can be a very difficult time. It doesn't have to be a very difficult time, but there are so many changes that are going on so many things that are misunderstood and things that like, we didn't know these things when I was young, when I was an adolescent, this is relatively new information that we're getting, you know, the past 
20, 30 years where we're having some of this technology where we can see what's going on in the brain, see that adolescents are using different parts of their brain than adults are. And that's why they interpret things different. They could take your tone of voice to mean it's aggressive when it's really not because they're using a different part of their brain. So when a parent says something and the, the child snaps at them, like, you know, what, like, why are you being like that? It's, it's because they're actually using a different part of their brain and they're not connecting the dots like an adult would. They don't have the capability yet to do that until their brain is fully formed. So there's so many things that are going on that there's just, once you understand it, like even a facial expression, like you can look at a kid with concern and they can see anger or they can see aggression because they're using a different part of their brain. So our prefrontal cortex, you know, which is pretty much here, it's the last thing to develop. So kids develop or humans develop their brain from the back to the front and from the inside out. So the prefrontal cortex is on the outer part of the front. So that's going to be the last to develop. Yeah. It just explains a lot. It explains a lot. You know, no, I have no expectations when I ask that question. I do it okay. for the sole purpose of finding out, you know, yeah, but for each person, because everybody's different. And yes, that is a, a first uh, different approach. But again, it goes to show you that you can be inspired by a lot of different things. Yeah. And I honestly, I'm so grateful for my upbringing. And even though it was difficult during those times, I had a great childhood, but at my adolescence was very rough. And But I'm so grateful for what I I had a great father. My father was like the best. He passed quite a while ago, but um, was such a great father. And I got a lot of um, care from him, you know, a lot of warmth and connection from him. But I wouldn't change it because I feel like I'm doing so much more good now to so many more kids than I was in pediatrics just by, I felt like I was always putting on band-aids and then sending these kids back to toxic environments. And it used to really bother me. And now I don't have to do that. Now I can help change the environment. And it's so gratifying. It's it's so, so gratifying. So I'm just helping them on a different level. And it really resonates with me very strongly. I love that part is you you didn't you weren't satisfied with bandaging things and you wanted to actually solve issues and and that's what we need more of so that's why I'm really appreciative of your uh, coming on and sharing sharing with us so thank you so much Dr Mandel you have any words of encouragement for any of the parents and uh, maybe young people that are listening to you today um well actually before that I would I do also want to say that I am a big believer in medicine. My kids are vaccinated. They get antibiotics when they need them. You know, I, it's not that I don't, I think medicine is great and I utilize it. I just wanted to help on a different level. So I just want to make that clear. Um, but I think the biggest thing I would say is educate yourself. Um, don't listen to, you know, the social media is going to be pushing things that is going to be making them money. They're using our kids to, you know, especially with vaping, that's just a big thing. Now I have a lot of clients that are vaping and I'm trying to educate them, but people that are saying that it's not bad for you are making a profit off of you. And that's one thing I know that nobody, especially teenagers and adolescents don't like, they don't want to be taken advantage of. And these adults are taking advantage of them. They're taking advantage of the parents too, for not knowing, like do the research. You know, and I know it's not easy because you go on the internet and you're going to be getting all sorts of false information. Like there's just a lot of false information. And I'm not always the biggest one on research. I understand I've been involved in research. I've done it. I see how sometimes it could be, there could be some variation, put it that way. But at this point, we don't have, and these 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 peer-reviewed articles that are out, that are in, not necessarily very easy to find, unfortunately, but there, the information is out there. The real, like the truth is out there. It just takes some, it takes some effort to get to that truth. Not just going on TikTok and seeing an advertisement that vaping isn't that bad. And you're like, okay, good, great, vaping isn't bad. You know, because that's what you want to believe. <laughs> right. But if you just think about it, you're inhaling a, a substance that's addictive plus, yeah. plus, you know, up to 30, 60 chemicals 
inhaling this into your lungs? Like, how could that be good for you? Mm. How could there really be a benefit there? <laughs> you know, that's well, going that- across your blood brain barrier. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it's not good for developing brains, you know? Yeah. Actually, it's rocket surgeon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, you're right. No, you're right. I can see how animated you're getting about that because it truly is that simple. But like you said, that's the one benefit of TikTok when it does its advertising, shorten to the point. And that's all people catch. The short and to the point. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, the short and to the point. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. Right. To your point, do your research. There's a lot more to it under those uh, yeah. quick hits, if you will. Yeah. And when it's something that's concerning your kids, like go to a reliable resource, go to your doctor, go to somebody who's educated in that particular thing that you're questioning. Don't get your information from Instagram and TikTok and, you know, random websites. They're not always, they're not always accurate. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I would have never thought that. I just knew that the internet was so reliable. I mean, whatever you read on the internet has got to be true. You know, that's true. That's true. Got to be true. (laughs) We know that that's not true because Lord, it it is. It's just another platform to advertise to so many good and bad things. But listen, I know that you um, have to go. You're so you're so busy and so important. And I understand that there's a Learjet on its way to take you to wherever it is you got to go. My so. son. Yeah. Yes. OK. Yes. Is it almost there? To... Because it's almost time to pick him up from school. Yeah. Yeah. It should be landing any minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, Miriam, really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, I love speaking with you. I I do. Uh, I really enjoy our time. So, Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, folks, as always, I'm Coach T. I'm here to educate, support, and inspire the next generation of leaders. Until next episode, take care. Don't forget to check out Coach T's new podcast, Teen Speak, with fellow youth empowerment and leadership coach, Keith Sinzer. Keith and Coach T interview teens and discuss challenges as well as victories that they have experienced. Available on your favorite podcast platform.